welcome to our Kingdom Culture Podcast. For today's message, we are thankful for what God is doing through this podcast to encourage and transform lives around the world. If you have a story to share about how God has encouraged or transformed your life through this podcast, we would love to hear about it by emailing us at mystory@kingdomculture.ca. If you would like to support this ministry financially to help us bring messages like this to you every week, you can do so online at kingdomculture.ca at the give option. We also would love to connect with you on our social media, on Instagram and Twitter at KC Ottawa and Facebook at Facebook slash Kingdom Culture Ottawa. We pray that you would experience God today and be encouraged through today's message. Enjoy. Subscribe to it. Let others know about it. Let's spread the word as we continue to grow our online community. Um, You know, we are in a transition right now. And I want to say this, it's a transition of faith. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. I don't know if there's ever been a time where it's almost scary to watch what's happening in the world today. It's almost scary. And it's so easy in times like this to let our faith be dictated by what we see or even by dict- or dictated by what we don't see. You turn on the news the many different news channels and the war going on between the many different news channels out there. I know in Canada, it's a little bit of a different game. But when we look at the world, we look at what the news is portraying, what the media is portraying, it's so easy to lose faith, to lose hope, to lose that light inside of us. It's so easy to let what we see dictate the, the, the eyes of our heart, which is where faith exists. It's so easy to let what we see dictate it. Paul said it to us. He encouraged the Corinthian church, and now it's spoken to us, that we walk by faith, not by sight. And I've always said this to our community over and over again. Faith is not a walk in the park. It's a walk in the dark. When you close your eyes and you begin to walk, that's what faith feels like when it doesn't make sense when we can't see clearly, when it may feel scary at times, when we move and we advance in seasons like this, faith kicks into high gear. And I, I believe that we are in a transition of great faith in this time. I mean, even the fact that our faith is being rattled and shaken in such a way that, you know, we're so used to putting our spirituality into the hands of the church, meeting, physical meetings, Sunday mornings, you know, weekly meetings, you know, midweek meetings. We're so used to relying on the physical location to help our spiritual life. Well, in this season, we don't have that. In this season, we're really getting back to this reality that it's always been about the location within, that we are the house of God, that we are a temple. And within us, Romans 8 verse 11 says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in us. We are a temple. We are a house of God, the Bible says. We are a temple of God. Our body is the temple, and we house the glory of God. We're getting back to the the true reality that God is with us wherever we are. We don't have to go to a physical location to get God. We don't have to go to a physical location to worship God. We don't have to go to a physical location to feel the presence of God. God is with us 24-7. Luke 18 says it, that the kingdom is within us. Big, big game changer revelation, you guys. And I think that it's so easy in this time to really get a hold of that revelation because we have no other choice. For some of us, it's woken us up to the reality of, that, how, of how much we've relied so much on the environment of our lives rather than the environment within our lives. It's a huge, huge mindset shift that's happening right now. Now, I'm not diminishing gathering. Gathering is huge. Gathering is important. You need to gather. We need to gather. When we are able to, we're going to be gathering, and it's going to be pandemonium. It's going to be off the charts. It's going to be absolutely incredible, like coming out of the cave. I remember... You know, in the beginning of January, I began to write a message called Coming Out of Isolation. And I was, I was writing it. This was the beginning of January. And I didn't know why I was writing it. And I knew I was going to speak it on a Sunday. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, it's not for now. I think it was probably the second week of, of January. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, it's not for now. Well, hey, when we come out of isolation, let me just tell you, it's going to be an incredible moment. So 
Listen, I'm not diminishing the fact that we need to meet, but right now God is doing something on the inside of our hearts, helping us realize that we are a location, that you are a location for God, that you are a, a, a temple, you are a place for God to rest. If you let Jesus into your heart, into your life, he rests within. That's an amazing truth that really transforms our life. So let me just go back to this idea that we are in this, uh, this transition of faith. And I said it earlier that, that we're, it can be so easy to be dictated or, or let our faith be dictated or governed by what we see in the media. Man, it's so polarizing right now. It's so uh, heavy on so many fronts. I mean, we need to be educated. We need to know what's going on in the world. But it's so easy to let what we see drown out the faith in our lives. It, there's, there's something about a confusion and an uncertainty of the times we live in, the, the shakiness of the ground we walk on, that, it, that if we let that in too long and we stop letting faith drive us and we let what we see drive us, what ends up happening is we move into unbelief. A lot of people in this season are struggling with their faith, are struggling with doubt, are struggling with unbelief. It's my belief that it's God's desire in a season like this to strengthen your belief even more. So because of that, what's going to come against you? This attack of fear, which creates unbelief. The, con the very opposite of what God wants to do in and through your life in seasons like this always attracts what always attracts the opposite. The very thing that God wants to do in your life in this season always attracts the opposite. The opposite will come against you to oppose you, to, to really challenge, challenge you in, in, in your belief, to challenge you in do you really believe that God wants to do this in and through your life. And I believe that in this season, it's God's desire to truly strengthen our faith on so many levels. It's paralyzing. It's paralyzing. You know, the, the, the Israelites were walking around for 40 years in a desert. And, you know, Isaiah the prophet, and you can read it over and over again, and it's recounted throughout the New Testament when Jesus talks to the religious and he's even, even talking to the readers of, uh, or the writer of, of Hebrews actually references it multiple times in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, and you can read about it. But over and over again, this, this charge was given. Today, if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your hearts like you did in the rebellion. Speaking of the Israelites walking around for 40 years, they would hear God speak, and then they would harden their hearts. They were a stiff-necked people. A whole generation died off and didn't make it into the promised land. The Hebrew writer calls the promised land the place of rest and likens the promised land, which was the purpose. For us, pretend it's, it's, the, it's the ultimate goal, okay? It's the ultimate goal. And they, they were walking around. Their whole goal was to get into the promised land that had been promised them for centuries. And... And uh, for hundreds of years, and they finally get to a place where they can actually get in, but because their heart, their hearts were hard, because they were a stiff-necked, stubborn people, they could not make it in. They could not enter into what is called the place of rest. It was considered a place of rest where they were going to be able to put their roots down for the first time to find home. You know, they had been in slavery for over 400 years under the hand of the many pharaohs in Egypt. And they come out of slavery. Now they're in a transitional uh, phase where they're learning about faith. They're learning about trusting in God. They're learning about the faithfulness of God, the provision of God. And yet over and over again through grumbling and complaining, they miss the step. They miss the steps that God has for them and don't make it into the promised land, the place of rest. Now he likens the, the Hebrew writer in chapter 3, which I'm going to read in a second, I'm going to read one verse from that, that chapter, likens the promised land to the new covenant in the, in the sense of that when we give our lives to Jesus, we come into that eternal place of rest. Let's read it in chapter 3, verse 19 of the book of Hebrews. It says here, So we see that they, speaking of the nation of Israel, Israel as a people group, they could not enter in to the place of rest because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. You guys, if there was ever a war against your soul in this season, the war would be defined as fear 
that causes unbelief in this season. Many of you already, whether you know it or not, unbelief is knocking at your door. First comes fear and then unbelief. Unbelief is just waiting at your door to take you out in seasons like this. As everything is screaming against you, the, the, you know, the earth is, is, is coming to an end. Things are, everything is shaking that can be shaken. There's no stability anymore, nothing to rely on. Economic future is, gl is, is glim, it's, it's, it's gloom, it's, it's gray, it's darkness. It doesn't look very good. It doesn't look like it's going to work out. You know, you've lost all of your RSPs, all of your savings because of the stock market crash. I mean, whatever the case may be for you, it looks dark. But this is a season in great darkness is when the lights turn on, you guys. You only need light when it's dark. You don't need light when it's light. You need light to turn on when it's dark. And this is that season. I believe today God wants to revive faith. Not just faith, but a wild faith. I want to pray for you. Father, I just thank you today that you're going to move. That you're going to invest in us. You're going to deposit something rich in us. I pray that today you would open us up and that we would not miss out on the rest that you have for us, that we would not miss out on the promise that you have for us in this season because of our unbelief, because unbelief closes the door. It puts a wall in front of us and the thing that we're called to move into. I pray that today you'd break down those walls, that you'd open up our mind, open up our heart, and revive a wild sense of faith in and through our life in Jesus' name. If you haven't already figured it out, today's title is Revive wild faith. I want to talk about starving unbelief. To revive wild faith, we need to have an understanding of the war coming against our soul of unbelief. I remember I was flying years ago. I had finished all these meetings uh, overseas and uh, internationally, and I was flying on the plane back to Ottawa. And I remember God began to speak to me. And, I, and, and on this trip, we had incredible miracles happen, incredible things happen that just blew my mind and uh, really radically transformed my life. And on the way back, I remember God began to speak to me about understanding how to dismantle the spirit of unbelief. It's a spirit. I want you to learn, Sean, how to dismantle the spirit of unbelief. Unbelief is a, is a bigger deal than we realize, and it creeps in slowly. It creeps in through fears, fear of not having enough in life. And so then we now have a an unbelieving heart in the fact or in the reality that God really is a provider, that God could really take care of us financially. See, fear creeps in, fear breaks down the door, and then unbelief takes over the room. That's kind of what happens. Fear breaks down the door of our, of our heart, of our life, and then unbelief takes over the whole room. Unbelief isn't the first thing, it's fear. Fear can get in, get into our mindset, get us to think different than we should. Then it changes our, the perspective of our heart and all of a sudden, we want, where we once had faith, now we have unbelief. That's why so many people would, would say it like this. They leave the faith because over time, the cares of this world, over time, the fears and the worries and the anxieties, they so creep in. And because there's no ability to navigate and manage it, we move into a space of unbelief. So we're talking about starving out unbelief. I've said this over and over again. If we want to uproot some stuff, to deal with the fruit, we have to be able to expose the root, okay? There's always a root to every fruit. If there's fruit on our tree of unbelief, there must be a root somewhere that we have to pull up, that we have to deal with. I don't know about you, but man, like around this time and then around usually in the hotter part of the summer, I have grass issues, and I got to get to the root of so many weeds. It's like in one day, my whole lawn can be covered in dandelions. There was a time when I first got my grass, when they first laid the sod down, and it was beautiful. For two years, it was beautiful. I had the best grass probably on my street at one point. And people we was all, were always commenting on my grass. And then boom, one year... One bad year where I was gone for a little bit, wasn't maintaining, it was a little bit of a drought, wasn't a lot of rain happening, and I come back and there's like those big, hairy, scary, prickly weeds all over my lawn, and since that point, it's been downhill. For the last several years, it's been downhill, 
see, I, I can't seem to manage the weeds. I have seasons where I can manage them and then seasons where I can't manage them. But what I do know to be true is that you can't just cut off the top of the weed and expect it to die. You got to go to the root. You got to get down to the root. If you don't deal with the root, okay, you'll always bear the fruit of the thing that you don't want to bear. And for me, in these moments, it's, it's weed. It's these weeds that keep creeping back on my, on my lawn. And I've said this over and over again as I've kind of dived into this message today that I believe we are in a faith transition right now. And as we transition and as our faith grows stronger and as our faith gets, gets strengthened in the season, we really need to understand the keys to starve out unbelief. And I just believe that God's going to really inject some new hope today. For many of you watching, he's going to inject some new strength for you today. And he's really going to ultimately change some perspectives. I want to give you three keys to starve out unbelief unbelief, uh, and revive some wild faith in this season. Number one, write this down if you're taking notes. Number one, first key to starve out unbelief and revive a sense of wild faith is we have to expose the familiarity and dishonor. Now, these two things always go together. Often the reason why there is dishonor is because there's familiarity. And I'm going to break this down in a little bit. But dishonor usually grows on the, on the ground, on the soil of familiarity. And at the forefront of this, this point, I just want to help us understand something very important. That true honor always runs towards conflict. Dishonor always runs from it. True honor runs towards conflict for the purpose of resolve, restoration, reconciliation. Dishonor will always hide from it and run from it. You know, we've never lived in a time where so many people have an opinion. You know, so many people have a platform for their opinion. Social media is the greatest, biggest, largest platform for opinions in this earth today. And so many people have an opinion. And whether those opinions are good opinions or bad opinions, I'm not the judge. All I want to say is that we are in a season. We live in a world right now, not just a season. We live in a world, in an era, where dishonor can be so easily sowed and so easily created without any desire to actually meet the person without any desire to actually do something about it, without any desire to actually have any even, even, even hope for resolve. We just give our opinion and then we go back to our daily lives. We hide behind the, uh, the curtain of the iMac or the curtain of the PC or whatever kind of computer thing you use or phone or whatever. We hide behind that curtain. It's like a curtain. Phones are like a curtain. We can just close the curtain and we don't have to see anybody. That's not relationship. We live in a season where we're so familiar. We're so familiar with negativity. We're so familiar with the bad news, the bad report, the bad thing that's going on, that it's easy for us to then to sow dishonor out of anger, out of frustration, that ends up becoming just, you know, really a, a, a breakdown of, of, of society. We, I mean, society is breaking down because nobody has honor for each other it seems like I'm, I'm generally speaking anymore like they used to at least when they had to deal with the f people face to face maybe they held their tongue a little bit I don't know but all that to say is that we have to expose familiarity and dishonor they're married together I said it honor runs towards conflict not from it and this is especially um this is especially an issue in I would say the global church the global church, and I, I, I define it as it's. This is not in the. It's not going to be on the screen. But I define this familiarity and the dishonor that comes even in the church community, and really, it's in any community, any business, any organization at large, any group of people. Uh, it's the. Let me just say it like this: It's the, is this not syndrome? Is this not syndrome? Okay, now you're wondering what that is. And I, let, me just, let me just give you an example. When you look at your friend who's been set free of you know, addiction, set free, maybe they've come into an encounter with Jesus and maybe now they're, 
uh, you know, a traveling speaker around the world. They're talking about being free of addiction. They're sharing their story and people's lives are being impacted. And you look at them and you say, hey, is this not that kid that I grew up with? And I, isn't this, is this not that kid that I babysat when they were like nine years old? Like, is this not that individual? Is this not that same person that, you know, screamed at the neighbor just five years ago and had a fight, fist fight, that got charged for physical assault? Is this not, and how can they be redeemed? How can they be reconciled back to, is this not, is this not that woman that, that said this thing or, or, you know, or, or you know, just mo- like, just literally like months earlier <clears throat> was road raging on the highway on the 417 because somebody cut them off that lives in Quebec. Is this not that person? And so how can I honor and receive from them? How could God have done anything good in them? How can I receive from God in them? Because is this not <clears throat> that person that, that just, clearly uh, is just new on this journey and really has no authority to speak on what they're speaking of. We have these, these, these ideas or these mentalities or these mindsets towards people. And this goes to businesses. This goes to everything. This goes to, to, to all communities. Let me read, let me read a, a chapter out of Mark chapter 6 where this is actually broken down and it really is demonstrated through the life of Jesus Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6 says this, Then he went out from there, speaking of Jesus, and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? So right now, they're wowed at Jesus. Here's this young guy. <clears throat> his, his wisdom is through the roof. This guy is something special about this guy. In fact, you can read it in other chapters, even in John chapter 7, where people were like astonished by, by the way Jesus would talk. They were like, this is a man who teaches with authority, not like everybody else who teaches the law. This guy is stand out. He's special. I mean, there's authority on him. They're wowed by him. He's doing miracles, signs, and wonders. They're wowed by him in this moment. So in one breath, they're like on the verge of just pouring out honor, and they're in awe, and they they see the mantle on the man. This is very key. It's so easy in life to, to only see the man or only see the woman and not see them through their mantle. Listen, it's not about lording your thing over somebody. You're a leader lording yourself over another. No, it's about everyone in life has a different mantle responsibility. And if we only see them through who they are and not what God's put on them, we will become familiar and then in turn, probably down the road, it will create dishonor and breakdown in the relationship. We have to see each other through our God-given strengths, our God-given responsibility, and our God-given mantles. When we do that, we honor God in the individual. Every time, it's like it's like in church culture, it's huge. It's like, you know, I want the pastor to pray for me. I don't want so-and-so to pray for me. I think somehow the pastor has some sort of better, supernatural, more higher-level gift than the leader of the department or the leader of connect groups or, or the person on the ministry team. I just somehow believe that, that, that Sean, for example, me, that has some sort of higher level power. Yeah, I may have developed gifts in different ways, but God in me is the same God in you. And when we learn to see each other through honor, through God in each other, we honor, when we honor God in each other, we actually honor the person. And we, we, we lessen the reality or lessen the potential of becoming familiar with them because we see each other through the lens of what God has placed in each and every person, okay? So you see in verse 2 here how the, the, the people are astonished. They're, they're wowed by Jesus. Then it goes to verse 3. Listen to this. Like I said, remember, it's the is this not syndrome. It says in verse 3, is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, and the brother of James, jo- uh, Joseph, Jose, sorry, Judas, and Simon. Is this not? Are, and are not his sisters here with us too? Like, don't we, 
know all these? Wait a minute. Like, didn't we change this guy's diapers? Like, didn't we see him have, you know, I want to say temple tantrums? <laughs> that was a message that I spoke years ago. But didn't we see him have a tantrum in the street, like, you know, 25 years ago when he was five years old? Is this not that person that's just like everybody else? Like, how could he be special? Wait a minute. Didn't he come from Nazareth? Like, can anything good really come out of Nazareth? Like, man, this is the guy that was born in a stable. Like, come on, this guy's not royalty. Like, we saw him being raised up. Then it says, it says this, so they were offended at him. And you see the shift, the mindset shift. They're in awe. And then as they begin to question, is this not? And begin to speak these things of familiarity. What it did was it sowed dishonor and brought breakdown in the environment to the place where they were offended. They were offended. Verse four, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Verse 5. Now, this is the result of it. Now, I mean, you've heard this probably before. A prophet is without honor in his own house, in his own country, with his own relatives. You've heard that statement probably before. Then it says in verse 5, Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. This is, guys, this is Jesus. This is, this is if you want a revived, wild faith in life, we got to expose this because this is Jesus, the son of God, okay, could do not that many mighty miracles because of familiarity, which brought dishonor, because of the, is this not what I call syndrome? Now he could do no money work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6. And he marveled. Listen to this. He marveled because of their unbelief. He was like awestruck, amazed at how much unbelief they had. How, did it, how was it caused? How did it cause? Familiarity and dishonor. He marveled at it. He couldn't do it. As God himself, there was a struggle. It just goes to show you how much of the good things that come out and through our lives are a result of the honor of the culture around us. Now, I'm not saying that God can't move and neither is in this passage, neither are we getting the idea that God can't move where people aren't accepted, but we do see that where there's openness, because I mean, Jesus still did miracles. He just didn't do a lot. So, I mean, you, you, can, you can be selling familiarity and dishonor and you can only get the bare minimum. If you want to get the minimum in life, <clears throat> be familiar with those around you. Be in dishonor with those around you if you want to get the minimum. But if you want the maximum, let it be your goal and your aim to create a culture of honor in your home, in your workplace, in your church community, everywhere you are, create a culture of honor and watch the maximum that God begins to do because of that. If you, if you read it in the same, the same story, the same story uh, found in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, I just want to highlight this verse out of the New King James. It actually says, now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And Mark, it says he marveled, he marveled because of their unbelief, but it actually says in verse 58 of chapter 13 of Matthew, that he actually couldn't do many mighty works because of their unbelief. This is why we need to starve out and dismantle unbelief in our lives. Because it stops us. It stops us from moving forward, but it also stops those around us from coming into their full potential. I mean, think about it. The more I doubt my wife, the more I sow dishonor to my wife and become familiar with my wife and don't see in her God-given potential the more she will not rise up into her potential. It's my job as a husband, Ephesians 5, to lay down my life as Christ laid down his life for the church, his bride, to see the bride come into all that the bride was created to be. As a man, that is my responsibility, to lay down my life, to shroud her with loving kindness, faithfulness, to see the beauty 
and the potential of my wife come to fruition. It's my job to so honor. It's my job to see her through her God-given mantle on her life, to see her rise up into that. If I'm always in unbelief, and I'm, in, in, and I'm familiar with her, and I'm kind of just treating her like a doormat, listen, I'm not going to see, and neither will she. she there'll be breakdown in the marriage. She'll be discouraged. She won't grow up into all she's called to be. Listen, this is why marriage is, what is what marriage is called, called for to see each other grow. And as I grow, she grows. As she grows, I grow. And we need to speak loving kindness to each other and so honor so that we both grow up into our God-given potential. I hope this is making sense for you. And this is why, and I'm just going to be honest with you, this is why sometimes as an itinerant speaker, it's totally different than as a local pastor. The way that I operate as an itinerant speaker is way different. And I'm going to tell you, part of the reason why is because when I go into a place, I'm not bringing like a family message like I would on a Sunday to our own community. When I go into a place, usually I'm brought in to speak as a specialist. I'm brought in for a specific task, a specific assignment on a specific topic or theme. So I'm coming in and faith is at a high level. There's an expectation. They don't know me. They're not familiar with me because they don't even see me. They might see me on social media, but they're not familiar with me. They don't hear me speak week in and week out. So they're coming expecting. They're coming w- wide open. I, I man, I remember like there was there was some trips that I would travel to, where the the leadership literally would fast and pray for like a month before I got there. And it's not because I'm special. It's because they want to create an environment of expectation of honor that's not familiar, so that they can come into all that God wants them to come into by receiving what God wants to give them. And if we could create a culture, even in our own community, in your business, in your home, where you create an expectation day in and day out without losing, without becoming familiar, sowing dishonor, we're going to see major things happen. The thing that I I believe ultimately begins to happen is there's a revived, wild, new faith that begins to grow as a result. I really hope this is helping somebody somewhere. I remember, um, you know, this is why you know, this is why I share I share stories when I travel. I share testimonies, especially if I'm going to pray for healing or prophesy or do something moving the supernatural. This is why I share testimonies. Revelation 19:10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Every time I testify to what Jesus has done in and through my life, I'm actually prophesying the very same thing to you. That's why we overcome by the word of our testimony. Okay. Now I love this because there was a great revivalist. Now I know he didn't end the best. When, he, uh, when his life ended, when, when he died, but it does not discount all the amazing ministry and platform and influence that he had when he was alive in his good days. There's a man named William Branham. Probably there's never been anybody like him in history that we know of, that, outside of Jesus, of course, that moved in the type of word of knowledge that he moved into, in. I mean, he, he, an angel would show up and he literally would get the, the, like the full address, social insurance number, I mean, every detail you could think of, and it would put faith in the individual so they could receive the miracle, okay? And this guy, I love it, he said this, he said, um, God spoke to William Branham one day and said this, if you be sincere and can get the people to believe, nothing shall stand before your prayer, not even cancer. If you can help people come to a place of believing, not just believing in God, but believing also in that, in God in you, okay? Believing in God is also me believing in God in you watching. It's not just believing in God detached from you. We have this idea that it's like, it's not about the man, it's not about the woman, and that's correct. But if God is within us, as we believe in God, guess what? We're actually believing in the same God within all the people around us. And so this whole concept, if you can get people to believe that you have something to give them without becoming familiar, without coming into dishonor, not even cancer will stand before you. And, uh, and that's why, like I said, I would share testimonies because I, I lived this. I, I, would, I would go into a meeting, God, if you can help the people come along a journey, and you can dismantle unbelief in the room, and if you can remove the roadblocks, and if you can get rid of the bad mindsets in the room, I believe that that amazing, amazing miracles will happen. Now, of course, 
this, this is outside of sovereignty. God, you know, even in Acts, 9, Acts chapter 9, God showed up to Saul, who became Paul, who was murdering Christians, showed up on a horse. He gets knocked off his horse, goes blind for three days. A light shows up, a voice speaks to him about, you know, I am the Lord you're persecuting. And Paul, which was Saul, has a whole encounter with Jesus that changes his life. Now, was he open? Was he believing? Was he sowing honor? No. That's sovereignty, okay? Sovereignty is God will do what he wants to do despite what you and I do. But on the other side of the coin, which we live the majority of our lives in, it's called stewardship. We're called to steward the atmosphere of our life, steward the environment around us. And I would share stories as a point of stewarding what God's done in in my life to help people along a journey so they could come out of unbelief and into faith to receive what God wanted to give them. I remember one time, I was in a meeting and it was in, it was in somewhere in Ontario. It was at a camp actually. And I was, I was speaking the average age of the camp. I think at that time was probably like over 60. Okay. So now you got to think of the scenario. This is back when I had long dreadlocks, big, thick gauged earrings, you know, did not look like a, a, a conference speaker. I'm invited in the average age is 60 plus. And I just opened up the meeting and I was sharing all kinds of stories of testimonies of God healing people that, uh, you know, were blind and people that were deaf and, and different stories of paralysis and tumors evaporating in people's bodies, like wild stories that I've seen in our ministry. I was just sharing testimony after testimony. And as I'm sharing this, it was like the lights turned on in a bunch of people. People started screaming this one, one woman, literally interrupts the meeting, screams, interrupts the meeting, saying, I can hear, I can hear. She had had like really expensive hearing aids because she had lost about 80% of her hearing. And she had really expensive hearing aids in her ears. She took them out. She was screaming, I can hear, I can hear. She left the hearing aids at the front and walked out of the building. It was a crazy experience. God healed her supernaturally, healed her ears. She left hearing 100% clear. Now, I can't explain to you why, other than the fact that I'm sharing stories. People are opening up their heart to believe in the gospel, to believe in the power of Jesus today, that he still heals. The Hebrew writer says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a reality. If he healed people back then, he's healing people today. She attached her faith to that truth, that reality, and it did something in her body physically. I love those stories. And in those moments, you guys, in those moments, nobody's familiar. Nobody's sowing dishonor. We are in a place where we're open. God, do what you want us, or do what you want in us, in and through us. So number one, we need to expose familiarity and dishonor. And number two, we need to deal with the fear. This is huge. We have to deal with the fear. We have to deal with the fear. I remember I had a word, uh, and I've shared this with you guys, and if you haven't heard this, please check it out. It's actually on the YouTube channel that you're watching right now. And uh, it's, it's, I think it's called uh, a prophetic pandemic, prophetic pandemic perspectives for 2020. And I, one of the words was that this year you're losing fear. That was the word. This year you're losing fear. I said it over and over again, and I can't stop saying it. Even if it's a broken record and you're like, why isn't he talking about anything differently? Because I can't, because we are in a season where God literally... He's warring over our soul to pull out the fear that has paralyzed us and robbed us of the purpose and the destiny that he's called us to walk into. Whether it's a healthy marriage, kids, uh, the job we're looking for, the career change we're looking for, the move, whatever the case may be, fear is a robber, always. It is never something that enhances our life. It is a robber. I'm not talking about the fear of the Lord. Two different things. There's the fear of man. There's the fear that, that we have of life, that God's not going to provide. I'm not talking about a fear of the Lord. I'm talking about a cowardly fear that robs us from moving forward, that robs us from stepping into our God-given potential. And the reason why fear is so, so important is because it is the platform of unbelief. I said it earlier, fear knocks down the door and unbelief takes over the room. Fear knocks down the door and unbelief takes over the room. Let me show you a, 
There's a story in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. You can read it. It's a story you've all heard. It's one of my favorite stories to speak from. I've probably spoken at least six or seven messages out of this passage in the last 10 years or so. But Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, recounts the story of the disciples in the storm. They're stuck in the storm. They're in the storm, and uh, the, the waves are raging into the boat to the place where the boat begins to sink a little bit. Jesus is sleeping in the bow of the boat. while water. It says actually, it says water is coming into the boat. You guys, listen, people think, and I used to think this as well when I was younger, you know, when I heard this story that maybe the boat was this like two-story boat. That's why Jesus could sleep in it. You know, upstairs where all the water's coming in, the waves are crashing in. Jesus is like sound asleep in his little bunker in the lower part of the boat. No, that's not how it was. The boat wasn't that big. Very small, actually, and uh, I've actually seen the size of them when, you know, being in Israel, I've seen what they would have looked like. They found a boat uh, at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee that would have been the same type of boat in that time used for fishing, and so these boats weren't big, and so you got to think of the, 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 the concept of this, the, the, the waves, the water was literally pouring into the boat, splashing Jesus, and yet Jesus is passed out. He's passed out on his pillow, sleeping waiting in his spirit for his disciples to get the revelation that they have what they need to rebuke the storm. But they freak out. Fear. Fear. They're afraid. They're going to lose their life. These are trained, seasoned fishermen. They're afraid they're going to lose their life. Maybe you're afraid you're going to lose everything in this pandemic. Maybe you feel like you've already lost a lot. You can't lose anymore. You're afraid you're going to lose your kids. You're afraid you're going to lose your marriage. You're afraid you're going to lose your house, everything you worked so hard for. You're not going to have your job when you return. You're afraid for what the end of 2020 is going to hold for you. You don't know how it's going to pan out. You're afraid. As soon as that fear begins to sink in and produce fruit, let me just tell you, it becomes unbelief. In this moment, the disciples were freaking out. They woke up Jesus and said, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? Look at the waves, man. You're passed out. Like, do something about this. Here's the reality. Jesus was modeling what it looks like to live from the kingdom. In the kingdom, there are no storms. In the kingdom, there's perfect peace. In the kingdom, when you have an understanding of who you are and whose you are and the kingdom within you and that Jesus is with you, you can learn to sleep in every storm of life that comes against you. This was the teaching. This was what Jesus was trying to model to his disciples, but they didn't get it. So he gets up, he rebukes the storm, says, peace be still, and all the waves stop. The storm stops in that very moment. Now let me read what happens after so after everything calms down, it says in verse 40 of Mark chapter 4, Jesus says to his disciples, why are you so fearful? Now remember I said this earlier, that fear is the platform for unbelief. Fear knocks down the door, unbelief takes over the room. People often will say stuff like, fear is the opposite of faith. It's actually, or sorry, unbelief is the opposite of faith, or doubt is the opposite of faith. It's actually not I would suggest to you that actually uh, fear is the opposite of faith. Listen to what it says here in verse 40. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? So first, the fear came in. They were going to lose their lives. That fear now is reflected into or produces the fruit of unbelief. So because I'm afraid, I'm no longer going to step out and believe. Everything Jesus had just taught me prior to this moment, I don't believe anymore. I'm throwing it in the trash can. It's like 52 Sundays a year we come at our community. And there are still things that just don't get into us. It's part of just being a human. You know, we have stubborn parts of us. 52 messages a year, plus more than that. I mean, there could be, you could be listening to like, <coughs> excuse me, like 400 messages a year. And only 10 of those actually sink in and transform. Well, the disciples were literally walking with Jesus. And it's like in this moment, everything that, that he had just taught them was thrown out the door into the trash can. They didn't believe. But fear 
was the starting point. Fear became the platform of unbelief. Fear always precedes unbelief. That's why he said, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? How is it that you have no faith? And I love it. The next verse in verse 41 of chapter 4 of Mark says this, who can this be that even the wind and sea obey him? It's almost like now they're, after they saw the miracle, they'd already seen stuff. They're like, wait a minute. I mean, like it was almost like they're just still blind. They're just still confused. There's still a fog over their spiritual mind. Because fear has a way of blinding us, creating a cloud in us. When, the, when there's a cloud over us, we have no clarity. God wants to take the cloud away and give you clarity in this season. I feel like, to be honest with you, watching everything in social media land sometimes, <clears throat> watching the news, it's part of why the cloud comes. We get so bombarded, overwhelmed with all these different narratives and the, and the arguing and the, and the dishonor and the, and the clash and the conflict. We get so overwhelmed that it begins to squash out or squish out our faith because we get scared. Can I believe in anything? Is anything true anymore? What is truth? I can't even trust the news. Why is this happening? Why are there still restrictions? Why is Alberta able to open? but not Ontario. <laughs> All these things begin to become the cloud. And here's the thing. Fear, <clears throat> fear, uh, I really believe is a huge cause of so, many of the, so much of the reason why we don't see the miracles of God. Like I said, it's the cause of unbelief. But it's, it's the problem. It's the problem as, as to why we aren't seeing a dismantling of unbelief in our lives. Why we're not starving out unbelief in our lives lives it's it's kind of like when people you've probably seen people do it knock on wood okay every time you let me just say let me just expose superstition for 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 a second okay it's it's almost like let me just let me let me liken it let me liken it liken it to voodoo okay there are a lot of christians in other parts of the world that operate in forms of voodoo out of fear. They're Christians, people that believe in Jesus, and they mix their faith with, with uh, uh, voodoo practices because they don't have a full faith in the power of God to keep them, that they have to dabble in other practices that are witchcraft motivated in nature to give them some sort of uh, feeling and sense of peace it's something tangible so if i just put this lucky charm and 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 put this special piece of tape on this thing i'm gonna have good favor for the rest of my days and this is the twisted this is this is twisted it's the counterfeit and you know i say that because it's like knocking on wood every time whatever you focus on you empower so every time you knock on wood and think that when you share a good thing and then you say, oh, I better knock on wood because what if it doesn't happen? You're empowering fear. You're empowering a superstition that actually puts your attention more towards the thing you do rather than the source of all faith, the source of all provision, the source of all life, Jesus himself, you guys. I just want to say this, that I believe God wants us to deal with our Christian voodoo. Now, I'm using voodoo as sort of an illustration because when I was in Haiti, for example, one of the main things that we dealt with was voodoo. So many times, over and over again, while we're praying for people to receive a miracle in their body, this was when I was in Haiti years ago, literally every time I would say, if you renounce your voodoo, God will heal you. A hundred percent of the time, when they would renounce their voodoo, God would heal them. I'm talking about like real deal physical conditions. They wanted to they wanted to keep their voodoo, and they wanted to somehow uh, uh, receive a miracle. But they were relying on voodoo to somehow sustain their life. So until they removed their faith in that and put it in the right thing, the miracle didn't happen. So I'd be praying for people. Nothing would be happening. I would stop. I'd get a discernment from God. If they would just renounce their voodoo, they have some voodoo stuff in their bag. They have some voodoo stuff in their bedroom. And I would go into a vision. I would see this stuff. 
and say, listen, if you would just renounce your voodoo, get rid of it right now, I guarantee you 100% God will heal you. And almost every time, I think actually it was 100% of the time when I was there, God would heal them to show them that you don't have to have faith in these superstitious, witchcraft-motivated belief systems to receive what God wants to give you. It's him and him alone. It's him and him alone. Listen, guys, when you deal with fear, you get to the unbelief. And this is where miracles happen. Miracles happen in this space. So we have number one, to starve out unbelief, to revive wild faith in our life. We have number one, expose familiarity and dishonor. Number two, deal with the fear. Number three, we got to stay persistent. We got to stay persistent. There's a parable that I want to read to you. So let me take a little bit of a coffee break here. God bless you. Coffee's kind of cold now, so it's kind of gross. But anyways, number three, stay persistent. Let me read a parable out of Luke chapter 18. I love this. I hope this is encouraging you. I don't know if you're, if you're getting this. I don't know what's happening right now, but I just believe that God is illuminating many of you right now. He's exposing a lot of this stuff where we've maybe been been not doing it or contributing to the problem in many of our lives maybe you have these little lucky charms things that you do and you think like if you get out of the shower the right way or a certain way or put the towel on the wrong hook in you know it's not just ocd it's actually superstition let me tell you if you start to deal with some of this stuff you're going to see a whole level of a new breakthrough in your life let me tell you there's, there's no lucky rabbit's foot in the kingdom jesus is the rabbit's foot he is the favor he is the one who changes the game, okay, for on every level. Luke 18, verse 1. One day, Jesus taught the apostles to keep praying and never stop or lose hope. This is a great parable that Jesus uh, shares with us to help us understand the value of persistence in and through our life. One day, Jesus taught the apostles to keep praying and never stop or lose hope, which we need right now. We need this teaching right now. We need an energy to never lose hope, to not lose hope, to not stop praying in seasons like this. He shared with them this illustration, verse two. In a certain town, there was a civil judge, a thick-skinned and godless man who had no fear of others' opinions. And there was a poor widow in that town who kept pleading with the judge, grant me justice and protect me against my oppressor. He ignored her pleas for quite some time, but she kept asking, Eventually, he said to himself, this widow keeps annoying me, demanding her rights, and I'm tired of listening to her. I love it. This widow keeps annoying me, demanding her rights, and I'm tired of listening to her. Even though I'm not a religious man and don't care about the opinions of others, I'll just get her off of my back by answering her claims for justice, and I'll rule in her favor. Then she'll leave me alone. Verse 6, the Lord answered, Did you hear what the ungodly judge said? That he would answer her persistent, everyone say it, persistent. Say it again, persistent. That he would answer her persistent request. Verse 7, don't you know that God, the true judge, will grant justice to all of his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, night and day. He will pour out his spirit upon them. He will not delay he will not delay to answer you and give you what you ask for. God will give swift justice to those who don't give up. I love that. God will give swift justice to those who don't give up. Here's my charge to you. Don't give up in this season. Stay persistent. You want to starve out unbelief in your life? You want to revive wild faith in your life? Stay persistent. Don't give up. Keep on believing. Keep on praying. Yes, it is easier said than done. But like anything in life, like anything worth doing in life, to get to that done place, you have to just do it. You can't stop. Don't let the excuse of it's easier said than done stop you from doing the thing you need to do to create the culture in your life to see the breakthrough. You don't know how long it's going to take you. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't stop believing what God has told you to believe for. It says here, so be ever praying, ever expecting just like the widow was with the judge. Yet when the Son of Man comes back, will he find this kind of persistent faithfulness in his people? 
Another translation in verse 8 says it like this. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? I'm praying that the day that I die, that one of the things that God will say about me, to me, was that you were a man of faith. You were a man of persistence. You were a man who didn't give up. You didn't give in, but you continued to surrender along the journey. And that's why you've been able to persevere and persist and not stop praying for the things that I put in your heart over your life. I hope that that's what God would say to me, to me when I die. And I hope the same for you, that you get a hold of this wild faith. I say wild because sometimes it's not just about having faith. I have faith. It's easy to say, I have faith in God. I have I believe that God is good. I believe that God is a provider. I believe that God can do miracles. But, but really, is it a principle of belief or is it actually producing something real deal in your life? Is it a principle up here or is it really genuine down here? Are you seeing the fruit of your faith? Real faith always has evidence attached to it. James Chapter 5, verse 16, says it like this in the latter part of the verse. The effective, fervent prayer, consistent, persistent, repetitious, deep, urgent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. This, this word for fervent literally means a deep felt need that's personal and urgent, persistent, over and over again, over and over again, over and over again. I know we've been in situations where we prayed for miracles or prayed for somebody or something, didn't see it happen the first time, didn't see it happen the second time, didn't see it happen the third time, but on the 10th time, on the 20th time, all of a sudden the thing happened, all of a sudden by the second year, the third year, the 10th year, the 15th year, the thing happened that we were praying for. Don't give up. Don't give in. I remember one time <clears throat> I was, we were seeing a whole bunch of good stuff happen in this one meeting that I was in. And uh, we were believing. I was, you know, believing. I had faith. And uh, people were believing and open. And good things were happening. This one woman came up who had been diagnosed with breast cancer, who had a giant tumor on one of her breasts. And she come up, came up. And she's like, can you pray for me? She didn't take her shirt off, but she said, can you pray for me? I have a, with a translator, she had a, a big lump on one of her breasts. And so I didn't put my hand, I didn't lay my hand on her breast because that wouldn't have been good. I had our woman translator who was also with me put the hand and confirm the size of the tumor. And she's like, yeah, it's there. And she could feel it. It was like a pretty big tumor. And we begin to pray. Now, at this point, we had seen a bunch of good things happen. Now I'm like, if we pray for this, it doesn't happen. Are people going to be discouraged in the room? But we believe, so we begin to pray. I put my hand on top of the girl's hand, the woman's hand who was praying, and we begin to believe. We begin to pray. And all of a sudden, the first time we prayed, the lump did not dissolve, did not evaporate. We prayed. The pain began to lift a little bit. We prayed a second time. The pain began to go entirely. That's good. But the lump was still there. The goal was, God, you need to dissolve this tumor in this woman's breast. We prayed a third time. And the tumor began to get smaller and smaller. By the time we were done praying, there was no evidence, you guys, at all. The woman couldn't even find it in her own breast. There was no evidence of the lump left over. God had completely dissolved the tumor. Why do I share that with you? Because sometimes it's the, pers all the time, it's the persistent prayer. It's the fervent prayer that wins. And even if it doesn't win, like you feel like it's supposed to win in the moment, this, this scripture, this charge in verse 16, isn't about when you have fervent prayer just for a moment and then give up. No, I'm talking about it's a lifestyle of fervent prayer. It's a, a it's decades of fervent prayer. It's decades of persistence. It's decades of on your knees. It's not once in a while, you guys. We have a once in a while mentality in North America. A once in a while. 
when it's convenient for me, when it's easy for me. We have an, a mentality, we have a drive-through church prayer mentality, in and out. I don't want to even go inside. I don't want to put the time in. I don't want to put the work in. don't want to wait in a line. don't want to be around people. I want to pay for my thing, get my food, and peace out. That is not how the kingdom works. There is process. There is time. There is active waiting that takes place. There is praying fervently that takes place. I remember one time this, this, this individual came and we were praying for him and he was blind. He was blind for, I don't know how many, I think it was over a decade and he was blind and, and he literally like, it was like gray. All he could see was like gray and fog. He could not see. We prayed and for the first time after we prayed, honestly, it was about, I think about 10, 20 times we prayed, he began to see color for the first time in over a decade. Why? Because we were persistent. We kept on praying. Don't give up and don't give up and don't give up and don't give up and don't 